in terms of you know helping lads understand what the skill sets are how that can be transferred you know making sure that we're we're doing the relevant things to just broaden our horizons and just understand that you know even if you play till mid-30s rugby is still the smaller part of your life by the time you kind of call it a day you know you'll you'll live more of your life not playing rugby than you will playing rugby welcome to episode three of chapters this week we have will fraser Will is a former rugby union player for Saracens who contributed to the historic 2015-2016 European and Premiership double winning team. Will decided to stop playing rugby due to a neck injury and since then he started his own company 101st. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Will Fraser. So I want to talk more about 101st down the line but let's talk about obviously you're a former rugby player when did rugby start becoming like serious for you when did it was an option for it to be a career uh to be honest from eight years old really? so yeah i was i was one of those kids that um i was quite a big kid so my mum always used to say i had loads of loose muscle um <laughs> which obviously it wasn't <laughs> um, and uh, so rugby suited me from quite an early age and I, I just loved it. So I was very fortunate kind of the the second I picked up a ball, kind of like the decision was almost made for me and what I wanted to do with, with my the rest of my life. So um, everything I did from that point kind of geared towards hopefully turning it into a job and, and my my family obviously we hugely support them in that and I'm one of four boys and we were all into our sport so we're all being ferried kind of all over the the country doing our various bits so um so yeah my, my parents were you know were pretty fundamental in in helping me on that journey and then got picked up by Saris at, at 14 um kind of put into the junior academy there with with quite a stellar kind of group of players um and then by hook or by crook managed to convince them to give me a contract when I was 18 and left school and then uh, very modest uh, something I found about athletes is they're so they don't want to big themselves up when they've done something quite kind of like a you got a contract like that's huge for someone like myself who's not an athlete like mm-hmm. to get a contract uh, for, as a professional is like it's fucking amazing and then when I spoke yeah. to a lot of athletes they're kind of like yeah I somehow got a contract it's like well it's probably because you're very talented you know but just going yeah. into that as a as um you know you say you got picked up at 14 how does that happen yeah was it through your club or was it through school so I suppose picked up maybe is the wrong terminology. So when I think it's it's different now, um, but when I was coming through with the lads I was coming through with, essentially and, and by the way, your your um assertion about kind of how rugby's played is right, it's there is predominantly a, an independent school sport. Um which is probably one of the problems it has in terms of the growth of it here in the UK. Is that mm. it's not in enough kind of um, state funded schools. But that's a different that's a different, that's a different story. Um so no, so I so each club essentially had like a catchment area they could they could kind of um, select academy players from. So Saracens being where they're based, kind of in in North London, um, the counties they could pick from was Hertfordshire, Essex, and Kent. Okay. So what would happen at under fourteen level was essentially each county would put forward their ten best players into the junior setup at the club. And then once you were in that, it was then at the discretion of the club whether you stayed on, whether they kind of let you go. Um, so once you're in that setup, it was kind of Tuesday and Thursday nights after school. Um, and you know, yeah, you had I was I was in Hertfordshire. I played for Hertfordshire, so I'm, I'm I'm I was born in Watford. So at the time when I was born, Saracens were playing at um, Bridge Road. Bridge Road, yeah. And I was born at Watford General, so I was kind of like attached to the, you know, yeah. So it was as local as local can be. Um, but yeah, so, so once you're in, it was you had you had people kids being driven up from you know the depths of kent you know yeah. as far east you can go in essex to then come and play at the time we, on the winter tri- night, yeah. this is it right and you just had school and then parents have jobs yeah. and you know so it's, a, it's a big ask um and then you had this revolving door so you'd have you know you turn up one tuesday night and there'd be like 30 of you there and the next week there might be 20 the following week there's 35 you know so you just had this kind of contact conveyor belt and then there was a core group of us that I say were able to kind of stick it out and um did enough to to get contracts when we 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 left school at 18 years old and and then that yeah then kind of are you talking about this group of kind of like the JB George George Cruz yeah is obviously the group you had Jackson Ray 
That's it. Yeah, yeah. So obviously there was there was more than the five of us that kind of got given contracts at eighteen to to the, the what was then called kind of the senior academy when you actually when it becomes your job, right? So you leave school suddenly you're in you're into I hesitate to say full time employment because it's it's awesome. So you know, I don't want people to think like you know, you're 18 and you're straight into like, you know, grafting and, well, grafting, but grafting is something we love doing. Yeah. Um, so we had a group, I think probably around 10 or 12 of us. And then like with anything in life, um, people move on, you know, some people just, it, the club wasn't right. Yeah. But various reasons why it ended up being kind of five of us that stayed on. And then I, obviously I finished at 27 because of injuries. So then that went down to four. George is now finished. Jackson's now um, finished and, and kind of we're, we're working together now, which is great. So, um, but yeah, but that 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 group to to come through and, and see what those those guys were able to go on and and achieve is just insane, you know, to to be part of that. Um, what was it like? Because I looked um, at your at the squad of mm-hmm. Saracens when you kind of broke into the squad mm-hmm. and kind of and kind of nailed it. Not maybe the full time place, but kind of mm-hmm. you were, you were starting to kind of assert your you know position. There were some big, big names in the in the squad, uh, like John Smith mm. was in the squad, and I think is it Chuck Berger, yeah, and you got Jim Hamilton there as well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're proper. Um, I'm not saying you weren't an adult, but you know, I feel like I'm only just become an adult the last few years, you know. So as a a young lad who's twenty twenty one, was it was it kind of a bit daunting coming into this squad of mm. men, or were you just ready? Um, it was interesting because Sarries had always had, you know, some pretty stellar names. So I remember in the junior academy, um, kind of pre-2009, we had people like yeah, um, Justin Marshall, Chris Jack, you know, these guys that have got, you know, 50 to 100 caps for the All Blacks. You know, we had some some insane, um, you know, Thomas Castaneda, Tim Horan, you know, before, way before my time, obviously, Francois Pinar played for the club. So the club's always had these kind of big, big names and then you know there was this big change to the club the first year we got given our contracts um so eddie eddie jones was actually a uh, head coach at the club at the time he gave us our contracts at 18 um he then left and a guy called brendan brendan venter came and, and he kind of just overhauled the club entirely so when we first started actually the club went the complete other way and when didn't have any and I do in inverted commas because the guys we had were phenomenal, but they weren't necessarily kind of household household names at the time. And as we we got better and better, and you're right, by the time I hit 2021, 20, 22, all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're attracting these these incredible players with huge notoriety in the sport. So I was a rug, massive rugby noise as a kid, right? So, you know, when Steve Borthwick was the first captain I played under, when he joined the club, he was England captain. And I remember being like in an academy wait session and he came in and he introduced himself to all of us as if we had no idea who he was. And you kind of like and and John was the same. When John joined the club, you know, the World Cup winning captain for the Springboks, mm-hmm. over a hundred caps, you know. And he comes in and he's like, Hi guys, I'm I'm John and in your head you go, No, don't worry, I know, but you go, Oh, nice to meet you, I'm Will. <laughs> and then we had we had a South African uh, lad in our in our group at the time and um and you know he he kind of shat his pants because he's like i've just my my wall at home when i was a kid was just john you know pictures of john type thing so no so so it was cool but i think if anything as a group i think the group i was part of it sent us the other way it's almost like knowing that you're you're in amongst that kind of player actually is a huge amount of confidence that you're able to be on on a level with them where you you can be mm. you can actually add value to to this team and that people want you to be to be a part of it and it's also huge learning right you know the amount you learn from how these guys train and how they operate and you know what they're doing that no one else sees as, as from a youngster or as a youngster sorry it's um it's it's you know completely invaluable really to help yeah. us progress ourselves do some of the kind of senior players are they willing to Let's say they're coming towards the end of their career. Are they quite willing to help out the younger players? Almost like uh, pass on their insights. It's not even when they're coming towards the end. To be honest, the, the club was very, very um, 
forward thinking in terms of development of the academy. I think Saracens has always had this conveyor belt of amazing academy products. I think you look at the the year we won the European Cup for the first time, the year we did the double, out of the 15 left on the pitch at the final whistle, I think nine or 10 had come through our academy, which is a huge, you know, and you look at the players now playing, so many have come through. So there's always been, and a huge part of that development is the ability for academy players to approach senior players and for senior players to be approachable, right? And actually go out of their way to yeah. to sit down with, with lads and go through video footage, you know, little pointers in training. And I know from, from my end, you had Jacques, as you mentioned. Um, you had a guy called Justin Melk, Ernst Joubert, uh, Berger. Um, you know, then although he's he's younger than me, you had someone like Billy, who's, you know, just yeah. a wealth of experience, far more than kind of I, I ever had. So you have Kelly Brown, another one. Kelly as well, uh, you know, was was a huge one for me. Um, I think what it was more indicative of is, is and I can only ever, t- I'll caveat everything I've said, I can only ever talk on behalf of Saracens because it's the only team I play yeah. for. So I, I, yeah, I can't, I'm not making assumptions that other teams don't do this, but I know that the team that I was fortunate to be part of was, was very um, proactive in all of these things. And there was an actual desire to want to do it, right? Because we're all kind of trying to pull towards the same thing. So if we don't help each other along the way, the only thing that gets hurt is is us. It seems like Saracens are quite active on preparing you for outside of uh, the rugby, or outside of your sporting career. Um, how did they go about that with yourself when you were kind of coming towards the end? I mean, you you retired early, or you stopped playing sport early compared to a lot of other people through injury. Well, how was that for you? I mean, it must have been quite a tough time uh so i yeah it wasn't it wasn't ideal you know i'd kind of plan to still be playing now yeah, yeah i'm coming towards you know um you're only mid i think you know, yeah 30 34 though the bags on my eyes are two young kids probably make me look slightly older <laughs> um, don't know what my so, excuse <laughs> you're slightly blurry at mine so i can't see it <laughs> so um no I, th- I think the thing is my career was very different to a lot of people's careers in the sense that you have this kind of spectrum of injuries players get, right? So you get some lads that can play to a 35, even late 30s, without as much to scratch. Most kind of sit in this middle bracket where they'll pick up a few operations along the way, a couple of major ones. But, you know, then you get people like me down the other end who, you know, struggle to piece together more than five or six games without ending up on the operating theatre. In the, yeah, so I... I, I just I think I finished at 27 with like 10 operations of various other injuries and ailments of the way. I've had a couple post playing as well. So um, I knew I probably wasn't going to have the career that I'd hoped I'd had as a kid, just by nature of my body just wasn't going to pull through to that extent. But I still thought I'd play longer. So, um, so I think probably the last, I finished 27, so probably from about 24, 25, um, I started being a bit more proactive in terms of looking outside of outside of the sport and the club. The club were great. We had a guy called, and he's still there, a guy called David Jones, club psychologist who also runs all the personal development programs for the players. Um, who again we do some work with now, but he's just phenomenal in terms of you know helping lads understand what the skill sets are, how that can be transferred. You know, making sure that we're we're doing the relevant things to just broaden our horizons and just understand that, you know, even if you play till mid-30s, rugby's still the smaller part of your life by the time you kind of call it a day. You know, you'll you'll live more of your life not playing rugby than you will playing rugby. So that there's... Um, so they were very good in that. I still, to be honest with you, hadn't... I didn't have a Scooby what I wanted to do because I'd, I'd always just thought about playing rugby. So my tactic or my plan was to basically try as many things as I could under the premise that I probably was going to hate it. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I could cross it all off. Yeah. So if I cross enough things off, whatever's left in theory is what I'd want, it's what I'd want to do. So that was, that was my plan. So I, I did some like work experience at, at a law firm. I did the, the typical kind of city bits and insurance broke in and that sort of world. And, and the theory was starting to work, you know, I didn't like these things. So I started to, you know, I started to cross them off the list. But then again, I'd finished kind of probably three years. My plan, my contract, current contract I was almost going to run out when I was 30. So the, the plan, contract. the Zaris's contract, sorry, yeah. So I literally just signed one. Um, 
So my plan was right. The reality is that'll probably be about right in terms of calling it a day. So I've got another three, four years mm. to, to go down this route. And then obviously it, it came a cropper a lot sooner. So, and then I got, I just got given a brilliant opportunity by the club. So yeah, this is the, the, the club was phenomenal um, in looking after us away from, from the sport. And so I was given the opportunity to jump over in the commercial arm and kind of start up or not start up, kind of carry on the, this idea the club had of setting up this, this consultancy offering to our partners, to our sponsors, um, and I ran that for a couple of years, and, and that was from a learning point of view. You know, kind of going from from chucking a ball around to living to suddenly basically being given a whole area of the, the commercial business to to run. I think the first invoice I sent out was I think I, I put the VAT at seventeen and a half percent because that's what it was when I did GCSE business studies. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea <laughs> if I bumped up, so that got sent straight back. I think the first event i set up the the events guys at the stadium emailed me saying do you want f and b for the event which is now i know which is food and beverage i think my email reply was i don't have a facebook account so you know <laughs> so i knew nothing i knew zero but um so i got kind of yeah, told at least you, you you kind of got yourself out there of uh you're getting that out of the way aren't you kind of making mistakes and but this is it learning from it this is it and I had this wonderful grace period where people knew that I'd just finished playing rugby so I probably wasn't the smartest tool in the shed so people were very forgiving and very you know willing to give me a crack and take a bit of a pun um as yes and we but we built that side of the business up to something relatively substantial um and I say I'd 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 learn everything from you know building the products to selling them to marketing them to delivering them you know I was kind of the only one in that side of the, the business at the club and then there really was it sounds oh, like it was a business within a business it sounds like it was a, it was a small business within Saracens very much so yeah so it was kind of considered like a it was like a business unit within the commercial arm if you like um that's great uh great experience yeah no dude it was it was from, I say from a learning point of view it was in, it was insane you know, it, the learning curve was probably steeper than when I was playing rugby um, because I, knew, I had no idea about anything. So it was hugely valuable from that point of view. And then obviously the club got caught up in the, the salary cap dramas, um, you know, back in the 2019, 2020. Um, and then, you know, when I was there, kind of the part of the club I was working for was essentially talking around the culture of the club and the performance impact it has. When the salary cap happened, although that has nothing to do with why the club got to where it got to. Obviously, the perception is very different. So, you know, not even, I wouldn't even say overnight, within hours of that news being publicly released, I'd lost every single bit of business we had. And we're, we're talking a decent amount just because people have said that we just can't be seen to be associated with, yes, which makes complete sense, right? And and so the only thing I could go back to on that... It's just reality and business. This is it, right? I was like, I, I get it, you know, let me try and kind of just give you clarity on what's actually happened, but I, I completely understand. So again, you talk about a learning experience, you know, dealing with building it and then it, it literally kind of nosediving, that was hugely valuable as well. So I think those things combined and then obviously COVID come in and, and you know, um, COVID in particular, I think just accelerated kind of, I'd had these plans of, of always eventually kind of doing something on my own. Um, because I think when I look back at, well, I think what, what, what I was very fortunate to get was this really deep reflection period when I was running the Saracens consultancy business um, of actually understanding, well, if I break down what I got from playing rugby that wasn't the rugby, how do I try and not replicate that? Because you'll never replicate it. And I think that's an, a misconception. That's why a lot of sports people struggle when they finish because they're trying to replicate and you will never replicate that directly. Yeah. But it's how can I get as many of those same intrinsic drivers in something that isn't rugby? And for me, when I look at what I actually enjoyed about playing professional sport, it was it was the fact that you're learning every day. That I had to challenge my belief system. I had to challenge my own abilities if I wanted to play in a team because that's the only way I, I, I get better. Socially, I was interacting every single day, you know, and I was fortunate to do it with people that I genuinely loved and I, I cared about. But I was interacting every day, and I was part of something that was meaningful. And gave me kind of the sense of belonging. So I was like, "Well, how do I? Where do I get that from now?" And actually, when I kind of bottled it down, I thought, "Well, the reality is probably to start my own gig and building a team 
you know, the team that I want to, I want to work with. So what COVID did then was just give me the, well, it probably, it probably the home office. I did it probably, this is it, right? And I, and I, I probably did it five years, maybe five, 10 years sooner than I'd. Yeah. And I thought you're that it's you guys. But hundred percent. And this is it, right? And I'm not ironically for my sins. Like I'm not a spiritual guy by any sense. You know, I'm, I'm probably as, as atheist as the Pope is Catholic, but I, if I believed in something, it's, it's serendipity. Um, and just putting yourself in a position, right? So this opportunity came and I put myself in a position where I'd had, I'd built up enough of a bank of knowledge and understanding of how do you build these things. I, I was fortunate to build up a, a good enough network where I could kind of go to people and, and approach them and say, this is what I'm doing now. You know, I'd love to talk to you about it. And then, you know, we built that up now for three years. We also, um, we also have a foundation. We started a year in working in prisons. There's six of us now across kind of the organization, soon to be seven. Um, and Jackson's now working with me again, which is mega, right? So it's, my dad always said, um, sorry, I'm, 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 I'm on my soapbox here. Um, dad's, my dad always said um, when I finished early, p- probably more of a way of, of um, getting himself through it, more, more than getting me through it. But he, he kind of said, well, listen, you've got an opportunity to start something now that when, when all your mates finish, you can help them out when they finish. Um, and I always had that in the back of my mind that how cool would it be if I could, if we, because obviously we're, we're, we're you know, very close so we always see each other and stay in touch, but how cool would it be if we could all work together again, just in a very different capacity. So the fact that the Jack is now doing some bits with us is, is mega. Yeah, it's awesome. Let's get into the 101st then. So, um, yeah, we touched on before that you're going to America and you're, it, it, I mean, it is a consultancy business, yeah? Yes, yeah. So so let's say I'm a company and I've heard about your services, but I'm not 100% sure mm. like what, what you can do to improve my company. Tell me... Um, what you actually offer to to a business so the, the the business side of it is i suppose we'd unfortunately we'd fall under the management consultancy kind of big umbrella which we always try and really pull ourselves out from because we're not management consultants because there's a lot of baggage that comes with saying that you're one of them so um i suppose technically we we we're a people and culture consultancy is kind of i suppose what we we label the business as um but essentially what we do is is we help teams so um the way we kind of approach it is very much that we cannot directly help anyone be better at their job, right? We can't do that because I've never done your job. We've never worked in your company. There's so many things you don't know. And, and actually, in many ways, what we look at is the job's irrelevant to what we're looking at. Because what we're looking at is how do we get a group of people to function as well as they can together? And then we layer the job on top of that. So in reality, we, I mean, we always spoke in the club. In sports teams, it's quite clearly defined. You have coaches and you have players. Now, the role of a coach is to upskill the player in the on the job, right? To make me better at tackling, to better at passing, to understand where I need to be on the pitch. That's the role of the coach. But yeah, everything else is then on the player. How do I, inter- how do I interact with the rest of my team? How do I build social connection? How do I actually have the right conversations? How do I challenge? How do I do these things? And that's the function of the team. That's it. So when we look at teams in, in any walk of life, it's the same dynamic whereby it's on the management team and the leadership team, part a huge portion of what they do, their job description is managing you, is upskilling you. So, but how do we get the team to function, right? And that's at all levels, up, down, left and right, the whole shebang. So the way we do that, why we pull ourselves away from the typical consultancy is, is our, our tagline, if you like, we use the power of incredible real life experiences to drive change. Our view on it is very much that it's human nature, right? Since the dawn of, of mankind, we've told stories so if i've gone out to the river to go hunt for food and i've seen a lion there the way i tell the rest of my tribe about about being careful when you got out i tell them the story about when i went out and i saw this and this and so it's been it's, it's kind of in our code that that's how we we express kind of um learning so that's what we do with the bit with the business so let's say and i'm watching for example We've had clients have gone through massive kind of headcount reductions. Uh, they've got a new global strategy, you know, all these things that, that businesses go through. What we do is go, okay, let's actually look at fundamentally what are you dealing with? So a headcount reduction fundamentally is dealing with change, right? It's managing adversity. That's at the core of what we're trying to look at. So what we do is we go and have find a story 
or an, an incredible real life experience that fundamentally is about managing a change or dealing with an adversity, but not just dealing with it, being better because of it than they would have been without it. So that this person comes in, tells their story. The group get all the good endorphins, all the good stuff you get from hearing these amazing people. Then what we do is go, right, let's take this individual out of the story now. Let's almost take the story out of the story. Let's look at the language they use, the principles, the tools, the, the way they trained, the way they prepared, because they don't own any of that. So how do we reframe, repackage, reapply that in your team to help you manage the change you're going through or the challenge you're going through, whatever it is. So it's kind of taken this, this model of, um, we've all heard inspirational speakers and motivational speakers at, at company conferences or events, whatever it is. And we go home and we tell our partners, our kids, our friends, Krakenau went out, Craig, he was amazing, his story's insane, blah, 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 blah. We go to bed, we wake up next morning, nothing changes. Right? Our lives are not changed at all by what we've heard. Yet there's so much there that could change us. By definition, their inspiration, motivation, there's so much content there that we could use, but we don't. So what we're saying is, well, let's use that. So let's bring the speaker in, hear their story. And what we do is form that bridge between the story and the group and the context. So, you know, we very much start in the world of the story, but we end in exclusively in the world of the client, but using the language and all those key learnings applying in their sector. So, so that's what we do. And, 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 and I say we, thematically, we kind of deal with, with almost all areas of, of people and culture, um, you know, change, resilience, communication, leadership, all, all those kind of generic titles. And then just being being able to really bespoke and understanding, well, what is it within that? So we've had people come to us to talk around, we want to be more resilient. We go, okay, that's great, but resilience is such a big word. It means a million and one different things, a million and one different people. So what does that look like in your context? So what is it you've gone through where you need to build resilience? Or maybe you could have been more resilient or what have you got coming up that, you know, we need to build this kind of group understanding in terms of how we're going to deal with it. And then that's what we then kind of hone in on. And do you, have you taken what you've learned from sport? Like, did you think, right, what do I want to use exactly from sport? Playing in a team of Saracens and take that into a context of business. I know, I think it's interesting you say you can't understand the exact problem within a company, but you can use a framework to improve the situation. So we can, so we can, we can understand the problem in terms of what the fundamental dynamic is, but in terms of the um the, the you know the politics of the office or the nuance of the actual skill of the job itself we because i've never done that job so i'm never gonna yeah so um so yeah so obviously i use my experience in the in a lot of the facilitation so when we have a speaker i i can then pull out my own analogies and experience but um but we don't to be frank we don't really use the saracen story or or right. yeah. mine because because the reality is as as a as a as I say in the in the in the facilitation, you know, I sprinkle a few bits in to help the group understand where they're going and be able to see it in another context. But for that kind of core learning thing, actually, we we look at experiences that are far more impactful and far more more powerful, right? Because you know, r as much as I love rugby and I love Saracens, it's given me everything I've got. I suppose in the grander scheme of life there's stories out there that are much hard much more hard hitting and much more kind of you know so that's kind of what we we go after we do um do a whole whole work on on team dynamics and actually you know busting open a lot of these myths around where we think performance actually comes from and a lot of these assumptions we have around what generates performance within our people and a lot of these myths and assumptions completely dictate how we build our teams how we recruit how we retain um, and that's what they are, myths and assumptions. So what we do do is, is use sport more generally, which rugby is an element of it, but use sport more generally to, to, to highlight, well, actually, when finance is the same, when talent is the same, why are some teams still consistently able to outperform other teams? When everything's the same, what is that difference? And that difference is, you know, is the dynamics of the team, it's the social connections, the understanding, of, it's all these bits, but they take time, which is why no teams do it. So there's a great thing with Warren Buffett when um, he's at a conference telling the audience how he, he made his fortune and a young guy comes up and says, I'm always really surprised why you're so um, open with you, you know, telling everyone your secrets. He goes, well, because this took me 50 years. You want to get rich tomorrow, so I know you're never going to do it. 
And the reality of, of kind of team performance is, is the same concept, is that it takes a huge amount of time, but people don't want that time, right? They, I need to be good tomorrow. Like we need to hit this number by the end of the week. Like we don't have a year, two years to build it, but we know for the research, that's kind of how long it takes. So yeah, so, so from that point, we, we, you know, that is predominantly on sport, that, that kind of, and then looking at research and data and all that kind of stuff. The reality is it is finding the most appropriate incredible real life experience yeah. fit yeah. the need of the people that we're working with and like that, that one that could be rugby they it could, could sound a bit different it could yeah this is it right because not only has it got to kind of have at the core the same fundamental um dynamic that the client's dealing with it's also got to be relatable to them mm. you know and and if, if it's not relatable then they don't hear it and they don't hear it we don't learn from it so um, so yeah, so we, we've got a number of kind of speakers that we use that I say thematically kind of hit most most areas, and, and then if we get a, a left field group that's dealing with something that we don't, you know, we then go and go out and kind of find the relevant story to, to tackle that need. And the foundation, tell me, tell me more mm. about the the foundation and what um, yeah what you're getting involved with. This is like a working in prisons, yeah. yeah so exactly. for for offenders and, and ex-offenders, yeah. So, um, so when I was playing at the club, as I said, I was injured more than I wasn't. So when you're injured, you, you're kind of you know you're encouraged to go and spend time in other areas of of the organisation. So the club had a foundation um, which ran numerous projects for um, for for people around kind of the, the North London area. And one of the projects they ran was a program in Felton Young Offenders Institute, um, so a, a, a prison for 18 to 21 year olds. And, uh, and so I was invited to go along and see what they were doing. Um, and it just completely changed my whole worldview. To be to be honest with you, you know, I I, um, I grew up in kind of your I suppose your your archetypal white middle class upbringing, and I had the best upbringing, you know anyone could ever ask for and have the most amazing family but because of that there was a side of society that I obviously didn't get exposed to um and when when you go in and you speak to some of these kids and you understand their upbringings and what they've been through and and and, and when I talk about incredible real life experiences I mean fuck me there's people there have some incredible real life experiences that you you only ever see on tv in soaps or in movies like it's just bananas um and then, then you, you kind of look at that and you go, well, you didn't really have a crack at this, did you? You know, if you've grown up in a family that's only ever been in gangs and, and your your moral compass is so warped because of your own, you know, lack of opportunity and, and the, the circumstances you're born into, you know, I mean, it's... like not many other ways to go for that. No, this is it, dude. Like, you know, just almost from the point of conception, a lot of these people, you know, I don't, I'm not necessarily one for like destiny or anything like that, but the likelihood of them ending up where they ended up was far greater than it was for me just purely because I was born into the environment I was born into and they were born into the one they were born into. And and, and then you start to kind of pick pick into kind of the, the prison system and the justice system and then understand how difficult it is, even if I went to prison and with the amazing family and support network, how difficult it would be for me to break free of that. And you think about people that don't even have that, no wonder... You know, the reoffending rate is fifty-two percent. So over half the people in prison have already been in prison. I think in the last wow. count, the, the social impact it had on our country cost cost our country twenty-four billion pounds. Right, the rate of reoffending and the cost associated to reoffending and the social impact of it—like yeah. it's a huge sum of money—and um, nothing's really been done about it because the reality is, well, why would why would we? This is it. It's out of sight, out of mind. Let's put them all behind a wall and forget about them. But the reality is the way our, our our system works, whether people like it or not, is that nearly everyone in prison is going to get released, irrespective of, of their crimes. You have a full life sentence, um, which then is no release. That's a guarantee. You then have people that will commit crimes in prison, so they'll extend their sentences who won't be released. But the majority of people in prison will, will be released at some point, right? Because that, that's how our system works. So is saying and well when they get released they're going to live in your community they're going to move into your street they're going to be your neighbor so would you rather them come out in the same mindset they got them into prison in the first place or would you rather come out with this pro-social view on the world and the desire to want to contribute and want to 
you know, do better. And everyone's going to say, everyone's going to say the latter. Yeah. Yeah. So you go, well, how do we do that? And so you have this, this kind of irony and this huge contradiction in our society where you have people wanting more money, PHS for police, for public service, 100%. But they also want prisoners to be locked up for longer, to build more prisons, you know, to, to not spend the time investing in them. Yeah. You, know, you can't have both because one costs us 24 billion pounds a year and the other one needs more money, right? So if we can just help reduce that 52%, even by a percent, by a couple of percent, the cost saving is literally millions of pounds, right? So the reason we set up, so nine months into setting up the business, um, I'd all, me and I set the business up and then a guy called Tommy was kind of our first hire, phenomenal human being. We'd, we'd always had this desire um, to want to do something more with what we're doing. Now, what we're doing was great, obviously, and, and you know we love it. But if we think about it, we're not necessarily kind of changing society or you know doing anything super impactful. So what if we use our own MO of repackaging, reframing, reapplying stories and do it to ourselves? So how do we repackage, reframe, reapply what we do into a demographic that it could actually have a genuine impact on? Mm. And because of my experience of going to Felton with the club, I'd always had this desire to want to do something in that, in that space because it's it's a space that needs it more than most and you know there's a huge amount of controversy around it and public perception yeah that that and just lack of education lack of awareness you know now, I experienced that firsthand I had no education awareness about it and that's why I had such a an impact on me because I was like shit I I had no idea this is going on every day yeah, yeah this is going on and 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 these assumptions about what what who people are that that are in prison right so so anyway, yeah, so we had this thing, so that was what we wanted to do. And then um, Sam, who's our head of foundation, uh, another incredible person, um, he'd been working in prisons for a decent amount of time up to that point. I had a conversation with him, ironically, in a prison car park, saying to him, I've got this idea about, you know, having this other arm to the organization, what do you think? And he was just straight on like, yeah, cool, why don't I do that for you? So so we kind of got, got the foundation up and running. Um, that's an interesting response yeah, about him yeah. that he could have been, you know, in theory, he could have just said, if it was the wrong person, he could have been quite neg- negative and going, oh, don't, don't put any, um, any effort into that because the, the, the system's broken. Do you know what I mean? The fact that he saw it as a, yeah. as a positive, um, idea, then he must think, um, yeah, it's, it's going to make a difference. Whereas some people might just think, uh, don't let, let's just stay bother. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and I, yeah, as I say, Sam. I'm very fortunate that the team we've we've kind of built is everyone is just fucking stellar. You know, they're, they're, I've been very 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 fortunate that the people we're working with are so good. But Sam, yeah, Sam's amazing. So Sam's yeah, all he wants to do is help, right? And he's, he he knows the sector. You know, he's worked in prisons for a long time and 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 seen the impact it can have on someone. You know, and all it takes is for one person to be able to go out and not come back as a result of kind of the work you've done with them to be like, right, there's, there's something in this. Um, and I think that's it. And, and so that's been going now. I say that we set up about a year in, so the, the business is just over three years old. The foundation is just over two years old. Um, we had our first fundraising dinner at Lords, uh, but last month, which went phenomenally well. And again, it's more just trying to educate people. You know, we, we obviously were fortunate to raise a, yeah, a decent whack of, whack of money to, to continue to do what we're doing. But the biggest win was the amount of people that were invited there by a friend or by a boss or whatever it is, who had no idea really what we do. And then go, fuck, I had no idea that those are the stats, right? And then that's actually directly impacted me because that's my money that's going towards you know, these things. And and actually the understanding of that, yes, you don't get me wrong, you get some, you do get some wrongings in prison, obviously, you know, but, but they're not the people we work with. The people we work with are the ones that are there for hugely environmental and circumstantial reasons. And yes, they've committed a crime. So we're not, we're not, if you commit a crime, you deserve to go to prison. You broke the law, but it's understanding how someone got to that point. And by understanding how they got to that point, we can then help them stop doing it again when they get out and help them show them down. So we have Important. We have three courses we run. We're in two prisons at the moment. We've got um, some amazing employment partners that have taken on some of our beneficiaries through the gate, um, and the, the success we've had has been has been awesome. And it's very much like like the same. And the lovely thing, the business and the foundation operate in the same vein, where it's it's not a numbers game. It's it's all about well, we only succeed if we actually create genuine impacts for people, for our clients, and for our beneficiaries. So you know, it's not a case of we put 
X amount into employment this year because the chances are 90% of that X are going to be out of that job in a month because it's not the right job for them because the partnership isn't the right partnership because so then actually we leave them in the worst spot than we found them. So for us, it's actually the well, that's even if it's only a handful of people, if that handful of people can have meaningful change and, you know, stay out of prison, then that's way more impactful than sending 50 into a job for 45 to come back out and end up back in prison. That kind of sounds like when you were looking for your career after rugby, you were doing these different, um, you were trying out different jobs and you're like, I don't like this, don't like this. Uh, an ex-offender and then yourself are both looking for that mm. kind of purpose-driven career, aren't you? And there will be uh, ups and downs and there will be almost a roller coaster of um, finding the right job. Mm. No, it's right. And to be honest, I hadn't really thought of it like that, but you are, you're right. And Sam, Sam talks a lot around, you know, essentially what it is, is an identity shift is the biggest thing and, and how we manage that identity shift. So for the people we work with, this identity shift or going into prison in the first place, then it's a massive identity shift of coming out of prison because of public perception, because of the opinion and judgment that's going to be cast upon you. But but the same for anyone. And if you, you you change roles, you go from professional sport into into a job, like it's the same dyna- dynamic. It's, it's a shift in your identity. It's how you manage that. Um, well, that's what this podcast is about. It's 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 about how um, I spoke with a former rugby player about this. How do they deal with this? Having the identity of a former rugby player going into a job, and he, you know, he said, I kind of found it mm. that question to be quite difficult. What do you do? You know. How was it for you when you stopped playing for Saracens and then you were known as, Will Fraser, a former rugby player? It's, um, well, I think obviously because I was working for the club, it was hugely beneficial is the reality. So right. I wanted people to come and kind of work with the bit of the business I was running. The fact that I'd lived it and I'd been part of it, obviously commercially made, yeah, so I, I kind of, I milked that cow for all it's worth. Um my biggest shift was then when I set up 101st. Okay. Because I'd, I'd gone from being a former player to then being known for running the consultancy business for Saracens, and then I'm running my own one. So when I ran my own one, again, because of what happened with the club when we first started, you know, there was there was this huge shift away from from that because I was talking to people and a lot of the time they were saying, oh, this is this about Saracens? Because, you know, They've just gone through X. So I had to have this this real identity shift away from that to get Hunter first kind of up and running and, and off the ground, which was tough because the club had been such a fundamental part of my life and and my family's life. So so that that was that was difficult. Um but then the nice thing is then all of a sudden you create this new identity where it becomes Will Fraser, founder of one hundred and first, who also used to play Saracens. And that's really nice because actually I'm at I'm I'm at peace now with you know I'm I'm nearly seven years post playing right so I've had I've had a lot of time to grieve and to you know to to think about things so it's it's that was a huge part of my life so obviously I don't want to be forgotten for that but equally I don't want that to be what I would, and to be honest given my career it was never going to be what people people always knew me for but um, but the fact that it's kind of one hundred first, and and I have that as well is great because it has an element of credibility to what I'm doing now. And but I, I like the fact that you know I've, I've I've forged this kind of new path, and it and it's exciting. You know, I I heard um, one of my good friends George uh, Cruz on a podcast recently, actually kind of talking through a similar thing and saying how yeah, there's obvious difficulties and and emotional turmoil you go through when you, when you finish, particularly if it's not on your terms or you know if it if it's not in the way you wanted to but if you can set yourself up in the right way and you speak to the right people and you get things going it can actually be a hugely positive part of your your life and a hugely exciting part of a part of your your journey whatever that is and i think for me that's kind of how it's transpired um and so i can be retrospective and reflective on that now at the time i probably didn't i didn't do it deliberately in that way but i think when i look back yeah, it, it's worked out well, and 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 almost entirely because of other people. And how important like, is it to have Jackson with you as well? Because obviously, th- there must be that trust of, you know, you were teammates with him from probably a young age, and then through Saracens, and now mm. you work with him at the club. How how sorry, um, one hundred and first. How important is it to kind of build this these relationships then 
outside of sport. No, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, just fundamentally because we've known each other for so long and, and we are so close. It's just awesome to be to be able to actually, you know, I say when when I finished what, what you what you realize is how unsociable a professional sporting schedule is. You know, it's kind of like, and I was very lucky that I had amazing friends outside of rugby that kept in contact with me because I was terrible at keeping contact with them. So, you know, when I'm working, they got days off. When they got days off, I'm working type thing. So it's always very hard to, to socialize. And when I finished, that was probably the hardest thing I found was the fact that I wasn't able to see the lads anywhere near as much as I wanted to because of that reason, because suddenly our schedule was completely out of sync. Um, and there's loads of research in terms of, you know, from a collection point of view, that's the, that's the biggest, one of the biggest things that, that kills it, purely just schedules and when, you know, the feasibility of stuff. So, but we always kept in contact and obviously saw each other when we could. So the fact that now Jacko's finished and, you know, he's doing a number of other things as well as working for us, but, you know, we can see each other every week. We speak every day, you know, and, and that's great. But what it also gives us is all the performance gains we had from playing together now find themselves in a completely new context where we can have conversations with each other about work that I probably couldn't have with you, for example, because we don't have that level of, you know, experience and shared understanding. Um, and he can say stuff to me that maybe other people can't because of that as well, in terms of challenging me and, and saying, is that really the right thing we should be doing? And yeah, all that kind of stuff. And um, so it's great, man. Like it's, it's awesome. But the nice thing is, when I look at the, you know, the five other people we got in the in the team, soon to be, I say, soon to be six, we're building that as a group now, which is which is epic. Um, and again, it's just creating this environment. Basically, trying to create an environment that gives me the same sense of feeling I got when I was playing. An environment where actually I generally care about the people I work with, and they care about me. Um, they can challenge me and call me out on any bullshit, and vice versa. You know, we're all on the same page. We're all trying to get into this this thing that's a bit bigger than us and and you know it's is, is more powerful so that's been the thing i mean that must be important in business i mean there must be a lot of um businesses being run where people want to say something that might ruffle a few feathers but they they won't because uh 100 and if you have that trust to say that and if you have that trust to take uh criticism as well then there's only one way you know the business is going to go in the in the, the right direction as long as the choice is obviously the right one this is it and this is one of the biggest ways teams miss out on kind of their full I hate to say full potential because it's such like a wanky LinkedIn thing but yeah on on reaching the, the heights that they, they can because of this fear of sticking your hand up in a meeting going I don't agree with that or saying I have no idea what you just said can you explain it again you know and you get this kind of willful blindness or all people we call it bullshit productions you you give a socially desirable answer to something which has, isn't what you think at all you know it, it's I'm saying what I think you want to hear as opposed yeah. to what I actually think. And then I learn nothing, right? So I then go crack on with Karen and do what I was exactly what I was doing, whereas you think I'm doing this whole new thing. Six months later and nothing's changed. You go, Well, what the hell happened, Will? And I'm like, Oh God, you know. Um Yeah, how many times do you see it in these teams where where the, the, the CEO or whatever will will say, We're going down this road and we're doing this new strategy or whatever and no one says anything. But someone sat there thinking this isn't working. Yeah, like, I'm experiencing this in a previous job or whatever. Like this isn't going to work. It says nothing. Lo and behold, six months later, it doesn't work, and we've wasted loads of time, loads of money, this and the other. And then the person goes, "It was funny because in that meeting when you mentioned it, I actually didn't, I didn't think it was going to turn out well." And they go, "Why the fuck didn't you tell me? Like we could have saved six months, of, you know." Yeah. But the reason is because if I say that, there's a massive fear of what's coming back, right? A fear of judgment, of you know the opinion. Do I potentially hamper my promotion chances if I'm questioning the boss and what I'm saying? So, and it's because the space there isn't safe, right? You can't. There's no understanding what the intent is as to why I'm saying these things, or you know, being able to view things objectively. So, there's that. But this is the thing. Let's go back to the very start. Why the job is irrelevant? Because this has nothing to do with the job at all. It's nothing to do with what the company does as an end product. It's only to do with this group of people and how the people function together mm. and already and well done for bringing it out but already you can see the performance benefits you get if you can just get this snowball rolling and the ability then has you for you to perform better as a group what what um inspired you to go down this sector i mean wh where did you see something similar to this where you thought oh i could do that or was it just uh, this whole idea of um, a story being a kind of uh, a vessel to creating difference 
So the Sarasens consultancy was exactly that, right? It was telling a story of how a club went from being pretty poor to pretty good and, and the learnings and how that can be kind of used elsewhere. So that kind of showed me that there was value in it, um, but also how limited that side was compared to what it could be. Right. And what that showed me is one, I'd, as you can tell, I can talk for England. So like the delivery of these things I really enjoy because again, it gives me that social interaction that I spoke about that I had when I was playing, the ability to meet new people, learn different things about and and every group you work with i learn something because it's a different industry or if if it's if it's a different dynamic or a different challenge so it just kind of equips me more with every with every session so i saw that and then and then also where i do go back to my experience of the team i played in our success was fundamentally built not on the rugby you know it was built on the group of people we had and our ability to leverage the relationships mm. from a performance point of view and really eke out as much as we could out of each other because of the ability, how well we knew each other and we had this shared understanding and, and shared knowledge and mm. transactive memory and yeah, all that stuff. And then what that then manifests itself in rugby, in our ability to play well. And I kind of look at that and I definitely have a huge sense of ignorance to the business world, but I think it massively plays in my benefit in the fact that I've not worked for big corporate companies. I'm not, so I've not got any bias yeah, I've not got any bad experiences. I've not been kind of institutionalized in any way. So I come into these things very objective and very kind of able to to, to kind of, I'll say, take the job out of the equation yeah. and look at it and, and help the group understand the dynamics of that they're going through. And and the nice thing as well is I'm not, again, people find it strange that I say this, but I'm not like trained in this in any way. You know, I've done the exact coaching course, but that's it. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not qualified. I'm not, um, but again, I think it's, to my benefit or to our benefit as a as a business because again we're not we're not distracted by anything mm. um, and what it allows us to do is kind of say well listen everything you come out with today none of that has come from my mouth all i've done is i've challenged you and i've questioned and i've i've structured conversations and i've structured work i was kind of mediating a little bit yeah we call it, it was facilitate right all, all we do is we're the person comes in and want to tell their story yeah they're kind of done and dusted within 90 minutes and then they're they're gone the rest of the day isn't us facilitating, okay, how do we work that into this scenario that you're going through, mm. into this context? That's all we do is we just workshop it in, we facilitate it in. Everything that comes out of that is the group to how we structure it and how we, we kind of, how we run the, that process, which is great because the last thing these organizations want is some fella used to chuck a ball around for a living coming in and telling them how to do their job, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're going to get told you, you're not going to get that job again because, you know, so that's not, we don't do that. We're very clear that we don't do that. You know, it, everything is, is them because as I said at the start, I can't do that. I've never worked for your company. It'll be unbelievably patronizing of me and unbelievably managing management consultative of me to do that, right? Which is not who we are, not, not what we do. Um, so it's cool. Yes. And I think that's been a, a nice reason, as to, one of the reasons as to why kind of tucked wood things have, um, things have gone quite well so far. Thanks to Will Fraser. All the information for his company, 101st, is in the description below. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, please subscribe to the podcast and you'll be notified when new episodes come out.